another episode of Decode. I'm joined again with my lovely host, Young Agamben. And uh, we're here to talk about some Simone Weil. So, loved diving into Simone Weil's work recently. We've been reading a lot of really good books and just really getting into Simone Weil's way of thinking, her politics, and how that kind of ties into our project or things that we're interested in uh, ideologically and politically. So, uh, yeah, I guess yeah. let's just jump into it. This was a huge deep dive. I think this is definitely the most researched episode we've done so far, but it was just such an amazing experience. Reading a lot of the Simone Weil that we read this week, I had not read. I had only read Gravity and Grace before this. Um, so that was the only one I was returning to, but I, I just found it like, you know, when you, you just find an author that you feel like this connection with that just like went from book to book, it's just always a joy to like get so deeply intimate with a thinker like that. Um, it's interesting though, because we both love Simone Weil and we both kind of wanted to do this organically. And I'm wondering, what do you think it is for you uh, about Simone Weil, about her thought that is attractive? Yeah, um, so I guess that ties back to a conversation we had in another podcast about our upbringing. I grew up Christian and kind of deconstructed my faith during college. And it's only now recently that I've been kind of grappling with what I understand, quote unquote, my faith to be. Not that I'm like religious or anything, but just always been interested in Christianity or like esoteric, uh, hermetic Christianity. And uh, I had heard about Simone Weil and I didn't really, I hadn't really read much of her until like last year. And I just read a couple of her essays from one of her journals. She has like a compilation of essays. So I took a look at that, and then just the way that she wrote, uh, I felt reflected. It's kind of like this not formal, not really rigorous way of writing, but at the same time, it's very like contemplative, very uh, poetic. And I really like that type of writing and that way of thinking. And so I, f- I felt like her, her writing was really prescient, like things that I had been contemplating. And I guess that's what really had interested me recently in Simone Weil and I I really wanted to do an episode kind of diving into her ideas and seeing uh, where we kind of overlap and where we kind of maybe disagree but yeah I've been really interested and was really happy to have been able to dive into her work. I'm similar in that way like we have very similar upbringings and I also kind of deconstructed my faith which was just kind of like blind you know as a child and then by teenager you're you're kind of against it just because you're against it and uh, I had read Vey and absolutely kind of identified myself with her uh, kind of spiritual journey because I, I saw in her what I was doing at the time, which was this almost like a Buddhist kind of deconstruction, mostly of the ego and of Christian beliefs while maintaining something that I couldn't really get rid of, which was my just like faith and firm belief in unconditional love, which I believe to be sort of you know, the, the underlying mainspring of Christianity. In a, in a way, I saw Simone Weil as like combining my own thinking. But as, I, as I've grown older, I've actually seen Simone Weil change from someone I, I'm interested in metaphysically to someone who's helped me deal with obligations I have to other people in the material world, both politically, socially, but also just morally, you know? And I think it's been a while since I considered moral philosophy to be relevant because I think it's been so contaminated, 
you know, where we are in this time frame, you know, you can either do the moral realism or the moral psychology of the analytics, or, you know, we've done away with morality completely since Nietzsche almost, you know what I mean? So it really revitalized uh, some need inside of me to seek the true, the good, and the just, you know what I mean? Outside of just some sort of relativity. Yeah, I was going to mention, that's actually a really good point that you bring up. Um, for a long time, I also have had uh, like this feeling of like staleness and like moral philosophy. And by reading Simone's work, you kind of do feel this like <laughs> this like vitalism, this like re-energizing of what almost like the same question, the the question set up by the Greeks, which is like know thyself, right? What what does it mean to live a just or moral life? And uh, I think Simone really grapples with those questions in a very profound way. She does set up her metaphysics and her epistemology in a way where it it really tackles with that question, and you really do start maybe reaching out for those questions like her whole idea of love or the love for the your neighbor or what you should do for people who are afflicted i think those are really interesting topics and definitely some of the most um i would say like the the, the biggest things in her thought the the things that really you know you can tell that she spends the most time contemplating yeah i think we should get into this because i think this is one of the central metaphysical concepts in Simone Weil's work. And it's certainly the one that's almost most interesting to me, uh, which is what you're talking about, affliction. And Simone Weil really wants affliction to be defined specifically as a separation from suffering, normal physical suffering, in that affliction is a, a suffering that's simultaneously an attention to some deep absence, mainly basically the absence of God. You know what I mean? So Affliction is, is simultaneously a bad thing. It's, it's you know, the de degeneration of the soul over time, and it's leaving God. And yet, at the same time, it's, it's the very process by which we can find God in the first place, right? Affliction is this, is this grace in a certain way. If grace is defined as, as, you know, some sort of line of flight out of the material into something that's somehow higher, a higher plane in and of itself. Affliction can, can elevate the soul, above itself or it can also dissolve the soul completely and it for that it's just like such a weaponized concept for her that that comes up in all of her works is how do we deal with the afflicted what is it to be afflicted and why is affliction necessary why is it you know i think people always ask that question is like if, if god is good then why so much suffering and i think this is a this is a answer to that question for me right I think Simone Weil takes very seriously the question of God's absence, despite her imminent knowledge of God's existence through Gnosis. You know, I think for her, God is very much the clarity of grace without even her opinions attached to it. Yeah, I, I agree. It really reminds you of that whole notion of like the via negativa, which is you undertake or you undergo uh, like the, the opposite, right? The, what you would consider the opposite mm -hmm. way of reaching God. You go through that path. In a way, it's not that the more affliction, the better. It's almost like the understanding of what afflicts the soul, the understanding of what causes harm or a wound to one's own soul, like you mentioned, is the path toward, you know, all of a sudden God's grace kind of immersing you. That's that's when you understand what love is in a way. Right. And it's really kind of important because it's. I want to kind of build up more on that concept or that notion of attention that Simone Weil has. Mm -hmm. 
because it really is when you have this like deep attention and we can go into what she means by that, but it's when you have that yeah. deep uh, kind of contemplative attention that you do have, or that you do find this grace that you do find God in his absence. So it's almost, it's, you can, t I don't know if maybe this is, it's really platonic in a way, but it's also really Hegelian. There's almost like this internal dialectic going on. I don't know if you have thoughts on that or, Right. Well, you know, there's the, the dialectic, we can just speak uh, briefly of gravity and grace, which uh, I think this dialectic comes from her sort of interest in heretical Christian sex, right? And she's very interested in these sects that the church has sort of excluded from the canon. So it's interesting because Simone Weil is, is affirming Christ and the potential of the church, yet critiquing everything that the church is about in her time frame. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that uh, one, of, one of the things that you can see in her thinking is this Manichaean line of thought and Manichaeanism being the idea that uh, material itself is hell and the immaterial is God. And in a way you can say that Simone Weil always says that there's this mechanical part of humanity and this mechanical part of the universe that is gravity, you know, it's just the laws of the universe, but grace is that which transcends just simply like the mechanical goings on of chance and offers a dialectical line of escape almost. So in a way it's like these things are connected while at the same time, they're essentially different in, in very key ways, right? Grace cannot be grabbed, right? You can't take it, you have to be open to receiving God's grace, which is why affliction is necessary sometimes, you know? She has a great quote where she says, you know, the way that grace is given to you is simultaneously through bread, through feeding you, through nourishing your vitals, and through stones, you know? She says that, you know, when Jesus says that he, you know, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, she takes that as, you know, let Jesus throw the stones at you. She literally says, take as much armor off as possible so that you can face Jesus naked. And the only way to face Jesus naked is through this penance which is affliction, which is this, this Jobian challenge that God's giving to you of saying, I'm going to leave and see if you will, if you will still seek the kingdom, right? That you will still believe in me, despite giving you over to the mechanical world that's ruled predominantly by evil, by passion, by non-vital forces, and by capture. Yeah, I think that was a really good way to put it. I wanted to bring up a quote I was looking for it. And it's in Waiting for God, uh, I believe page 63. We cannot take a step toward the heavens. God crosses the universe and comes to us. It's a very platonic and a very Kantian notion. And she uses the exact concept of metaxu or metaxia, sometimes it's translated, which is this in-betweenness. You mentioned that affliction mm -hmm. or that, for example, beauty or these, you could say, like transcendental categories are often used to kind of contemplate the good or the just or, you know, these, these platonic forms in a way. God himself, you could say. But there's no direct contact. There's no direct accessing. Um, right. So I, th I think that's very interesting in her metaphysics because it then, it kind of gives you a, a full understanding of Simone Weil's worldview, which is like this very Gnostic Christianity, which is, you know, you mentioned we're in hell or materiality 
is hell. We're already in a fallen state, mm-hmm. but only through this fallen state by which we have mediations towards the good can we be saved or can we escape some sort of carnal uh, hell. Like that is the right. that is the Christian faith. You you are drawn like a moth to a flame to the good, and its contemplation is salvation in a way. Yeah, that's. I think that's really well put. The, yeah, the attention and the cultivation of those things are sort of the techniques of salvation. You know, they're the economy of salvation. For some Whereas, and this is, you know, in, in stark contrast to the economy of salvation presented by the Augustinian church and the, the uh, notion of original sin, where, you know, uh, Augustine wants to say that because of the first man's sin, Adam, we're all simultaneously sinners and we're given death. And Simone Weil, I think, wants to make a distinction that, no, it's not that you're necessarily give, you know, you're responsible for the sins of Adam. It's that you're responsible in a Pelagian sense for the sins of yourself, right? Even if that was in some deeply spiritual sense, some, some bargain you've already made with God prior to entering the world, right? So I think the contemplation of the good uh, combines with her notion of, of free will, which I think is very important because it's only through knowing a good that one can discern, right? The, the path to salvation, the path to God himself. So in a way she's saying there's, there's, two, there's two directions. There's down and up, there's gravity and grace, right? Yeah, I was gonna mention, you bring up the notion of free will, which um, again, just kind of to draw connections, it reminds me of that Kantian notion of free will which is not so much as a, um, a free will as, as, how would I say it, is a, as a um, kind of free will to do one's own choice. It's free will to aim for the just or like, um, right. kind of like to, to reach that moral self. Like in, in Kantian ethics, it's, you know, you have that free will to, um, you know, like towards reason, I guess you could say. And then in that, that's how you uncover the categorical imperative. In, a way, in the same way, Simone right. Bay is saying you have this free will, but it's, it's always in direction or in this motion of contemplation of the good. And, right. you know, you can always choose to look the other way or to kind of um, oppose yourself to God or to the good. But in, in that, that's when, you, that's when you, in a way, fragment the soul. Um, right. To go away from from the good or from this contemplation is, in a way, um, let me see if I have the quote here. Okay, so I think it's from page sixty five. From I believe it's Gravity and Grace. The soul empties itself of all of its own contents in order to receive into itself the being it is looking at. Just as he is in all his truth, only he who is capable of attention can do this. So when you are in this contemplative, self-reflective state, you know, that is attention to oneself in the same way that is the metaksu or the only way, the in-between is to actually reach right. God. Um, right. It's this paradox too, right? Because, uh, and this is the big question I think Simone Fay really wants to answer for us, which is why is it that that's, that's the way to salvation that, that, you know, it's not working towards God. It's actually kind of 
working in the opposite direction through sources of affliction, through penance, things like that. Um, I think uh, Simone Weil points out very rightly that God is simply God's love for himself. And in order for God to love himself and to be the, the unity that he is, he has to make this initial bargain, which gives us free will. And that God distances himself from himself while simultaneously casting out uh, possession of himself to whatever will come next, right? So only through God's distance do we have a chance of salvation, not his presence. You know, and, and she says in, in uh, she says in Waiting for God uh, on 75, God can never be perfectly present to us uh, here below on account of our flesh, but he can be almost perfectly absent from us in systems of affliction. This is the only possibility of perfection for us here on earth. And otherwise, it's almost this Jobian idea of, of, of what Christianity is, is this laboring, a constant, constant laboring through affliction to liberate simultaneously the souls that, that were afflicted and had to suffer and who in the future might be redeemed by our actions now, right? So it provides this, this almost perfect messianic continuum of time between the garden and the kingdom, right? It's almost uh, that, the painting, you know, the, the Garden of Earthly Paradise, where heaven and hell appear to be kind of the same place, right? There's almost a simultaneity because it's all just God. It's just God's absence from himself that causes uh, that which is self-conscious to seek out God. Yeah, it almost has a very like Spinozian or like Deleuzian understanding of the whole or like the one, which is that yeah. there's already like this double articulation or this this Hegelian dialectic going on, which is, you know, that the duality that you've already mentioned that heaven and hell are kind of in the same place. So mm -hmm. there's similarities, not because they're dissimilar, but because they are the one, right? It's, one. it's, it's all oneness. Um, I was going to bring up this quote. It reminded me of what you exactly just said, which is uh, to empty ourselves of our false divinity, to deny ourselves, to give up being the center of the world in imagination, to discern that all points in the world are equally centers and that the true center is outside the world. This is to consent to the rule of mechanical necessity and matter and a free choice at the center of each soul. Such consent is love, the face of this love, which is turned towards thinking persons, is the love of our neighbor. And I think that really encapsulates what you said, because that, that, that is how you save other people. That, that is attention right. in a way, isn't so much attention inwards to ourselves as much as it is also, it's almost like that Kantian notion of, you know, can you establish a universal maxim by which everyone can right. reasonably um, act? And that's, that's almost embodied in the Christian canon with the love thy neighbor maxim or, Mm -hmm. um you know treat treat yourself treat your neighbor as you would treat yourself that that is right. the embodiment of that right yeah I, I completely agree um and you know and what we're laboring against uh which is god's distance is the same thing in itself that offers our salvation you know what i mean and she defines uh the distance of god is three things space time and the mechanisms governing uh, the mechanical forces of nature, right? So 
only with God kind of giving that over to mechanical forces and not to his understanding allows that little part of us that knows God, that remembers God from the garden to choose to return to him in unity or to choose to separate fully from him, right? So in a way, this is, this is you know, uh, very, very much so a heretical Christian doctrine that follows very much the brothers of the free spirit who were kind of the first to put something forward where they interpreted the garden of earthly paradise as the simultaneity of heaven and hell as above, so below, you know, the famous phrase. I think Simone Weil, while not bringing, you know, sort of that, that much esoteric language into it, is kind of putting forth a, a Christian merging of the kingdom and the garden while, while pointing out just how bad and how hard it is to, to be operating a material, how against the odds it is to be able to make a free choice, right? And to be able to choose what is right over what is just simply the mechanical desires in your body, the passions, the random associations that were given to you as like a robot, right? What is robotic about you is, is gravity and what is, what is uniquely almost supra, supra, you know, uh, identical or supra uh, individual is, is what is God, you know? The thing that exists through everything and yet simultaneously can only enter once we empty ourselves, which is, you know, like we're talking about that kind of almost Buddhist uh, practice of attention of emptying the ego so that God might come and see through your eyes, which I've always loved about Simone Faze of explaining that, like that it's not about thinking any specific way, it's about completely emptying yourself for God to use you as your as a vessel or Christ, right? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, um, especially when you connect it to notions. I mean, she's, she explicitly uses the notion of void, um, which just kind of, to me, rings really like esoteric, like Eastern philosophy um, vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's almost in that emptying of that ego, like you mentioned, um, when you do that or when you go through that process, that is when you it's almost like a like a nurturing of the soul in a way. So it does the exact opposite right. of what it's intended to do. It's a lot of people see it as like this passive nihilistic um maybe understanding of of like emptying the ego, but it's almost yeah. the exact opposite. It's almost by emptying the ego that you really can truly formulate or process empathy and in that empathy um that's when you can truly begin to love that is right that is when you can actually place yourself um i think you brought up the quote earlier where it's like that's how god loves himself or like that's the process by which god god does the loving and it's a very like spinozian um i don't know like ethic or like maxim which is you know god thinks of itself through through himself or through itself and it's it's almost right. like a like a distancing you mentioned as above so below and it's like that's the whole notion of oneness it's it's as much as we're removed from god that is when god comes to us and and you know um that's when we're filled with his grace like in that moment where we've reached right. absolute void that's when you can actually open up your body or your receptacle or your soul to be right. filled in yeah, it's only through affliction, too, that you're offered resurrection. Like, even Christ suffered affliction insofar as he was a material body, she points out. And he suffered affliction by, you know, uh, asking God to spare him, you know, 
and saying, God, why have you forsaken me? And basically the ability to doubt God, but then choose to do his bidding was the affliction that provided Christ's opportunity for resurrection and for all of our resurrection, right? So in a way without affliction, right? We're, we're already in hell, right? Only through this weird kind of double polarity of negative to positive charges in this weird sort of economy of salvation uh, is one to kind of overcome this, this, this necessary downward pull of just being in, you know, the, the laws of gravity, the laws of mechanical nature that, that are predominant in, in where we are on the, on the levels, right? On the, on this plane of existence, right? Yeah, I actually was going to bring up how she makes connections to beauty and how, you know, I guess to, to her understanding of beauty, it's that beauty has this telos, which is its orientation or its, its path to, to the contemplation of the good. And she kind of has this view of beauty as, you know, art can never really encapsulate beauty there's only one thing that's truly beautiful and that's like the universe in its entirety i think that's right uh, she actually directly says that in um one of her yeah. essays in a waiting for, that. for god beauty beauty is something that like you're saying can only be approximated yet it's, it's simultaneously an obligation to pursue it right like you're never going to achieve the most beautiful you're never going to recreate god's you know world but you can approximate something that will show a little bit of what God's creation is, right? So for her, art serves the means of beauty. Whereas I think that kind of brings in a critique that she kind of makes of what's going on. Modern art is, is almost this, this end in and of itself. Art for art's sake, she literally says, is, is, is a ridiculous idea because art for art's sake is almost just the mechanical play of the techniques of whatever art you're doing. Whereas, no, it's not that art is just fun to play around with. I mean, robots could do that, but the, the reason we do art is to approach something outside of what is constrained in space, time, and mechanical laws, right? It's, it's to approach the divine. Right. So it's like that, you know, we've been saying it's that pursuit of the transcendental, of the, you know, the form of the good. And I guess with, with that, because I, I don't know if it's in that same chapter, if it's later on, or if maybe it's in Gravity and Grace, I don't I'm conflating the two, maybe, but she has that statue quote, quote where she's like, there's as much beauty, or at least qualitatively, there's as much beauty in one perfect Greek statue as there are in three. Um, which is to say that, you know, there seems to be this modernistic, and this maybe this is the critique of like modernity of her, you know, her contemporary uh, position at that time which is this notion of trying to quantify everything and break things down. And right. she even criticizes this by saying that the, that the absolute, you know, uh, the ultimate thing science could do would be its pursuit of beauty, which would be like, if science could do something, it would be in the pursuit of, um, you know, this telos towards the transcendental but in, it right. does the exact opposite. It only focuses on things that are, uh, you know, utility. It's basically the maximum of reason. Right. And in a way, she kind of, she kind of has a, maybe I don't want to make this connection, but she has like this 
the pseudo Bataillon, maybe this is Bataille's crypto Platonism coming up, which is that that expenditure. It's like it's it, in order to kind of dominate or kind of go away from reason from the maxim that maxim of like uh, the capitalist regime is to kind of pursue these things which are non utility based, and in that right. we have some sort of um, maybe not like salvation, but we have you know we we reach a human essence, so to say. Right. Um, yeah, and I think that that sort of speaks to her major critique of modernity, which is that you can't approach the good, the beautiful, or anything transcendental if your primary motive, your primary end is money power, right? So if, if money is the, the end and not beauty, then it's it's always going to lead to a spiritual degradation that that is going to lower humanity's ability to be closer to God. We'll, we'll bring up a, a further absence from God in sort of a, a self-created prison of sort of pseudo rationality of of science that that uh, that is just sort of an end in and of itself, rather than being used for something that's actually a vital human purpose. Right. I think that's kind of like that, maybe the tradition of vitalism, which is right now under capitalist regimes, like you mentioned, there's this, there's this understanding of flourishing, which is only in so far as it, it's a pursuit towards one's maximization of utility for profit or what have you. Right. Uh, as opposed to, in the traditional sense of eudaimonia, which is of one's own imminent flourishing, um, which is you know it's it's like a development of one's soul, if if I were to kind of boil it down, which I think Simone Bay is very critical of her institutions. We can maybe dive into a little bit of her um, her critique of education, and then maybe into uh, political institutions, but. She kind of has this very strong emphasis in education, how that should be done, and what the role of these uh, educational institutions should be. So
it's it's interesting. I, I think this this goes to uh, this this vitalism in Simone Weil, where uh, she's very clear that that these types of institutions, that anything, um, needs to serve the vital energy of the human spirit, right? And everything that that uh, increases the vital energy in us, she says, is is quite literally. Uh, what Christ uses to feed uh, the just, right? So in, in a way, she sees society as almost organized around what she calls evil, which is just the, the suppression of vital forces completely. And what she sees modernity as a degradation of the human spirit almost in its totality, um, which, which challenges uh, the potential for human vitality at all that human vitality is, is completely at risk right now is, is a very, is a very real thing. And especially during, you know, Simone Weil's time, it was, it was very much at risk of, of, uh, you know, a completely totalitarian world, you know, and we're kind of entering into that now, but I, I think it's a, it's an interesting metaphysical and political concept to say that we should only see institutions as good or things as good in so much as they as they feed us that vital energy as they increase the vital energies that are necessary in humanity yeah i think that's a really good point because um i feel like the popular image of simone Weil is the one of this you know this marxist radical revolutionary and that's not to say that she wasn't she was very much affiliated with the you know, the Marxist uh, political movements in France in her time. I mean, she was a very, you could say, a a very uh, militant um, activist. I mean, she went as far as to, I think she actually went to Spain and tried to enroll in the, in the, what is it called, in the military to kind of fight alongside with them. But then Mm -hmm. she got like hurt and she was like too small to actually fight. So they told her, just go home. Um, yeah, yeah, and then she tried to go to, you know, she was fighting in France, but she was very weak, and, uh, you know, kind of ironically, she, she got very sick with, I think it was tuberculosis at the time, but her parents, like, kind of uh, were so rich that they could medevac her out of uh, wartime France, you know, <laughs> as a resistance fighter, which is pretty funny, but, you know, in, in typical Simone Weil fashion, she died in a sanitarium, you know, just a hospital from her illness, because she refused to eat more uh, than what was allotted to to the French by the Germans during World War II, which was not enough to feed herself. So in, in a way, uh, she literally deprived herself of uh, of material for some sort of you know supernatural belief. You know, it's kind of the perfect uh, action of Simone Weil. And I think it's interesting she died at 33, which is you know like the same as uh, Christ. You know. Uh, <laughs> I, th- I think, yeah, she, she kind of is just like the closest manifestation to Christ that, you know, maybe modern society has seen, just a, a complete dedication that has no social obligations. You know, I think we, we have to say is like, Simone Weil was Jewish, you know what I mean? Like ethnically, she was Jewish and her, her family was highly intellectual, but she was not raised religious and she had no reason to be Christian. And it just so happened to come across her in the same way that she says God's grace always comes across, which is that God finds you. And if you're open to it, you know, you receive it or you deny it. That's your choice. Not whether to go get it or not. Right. You know, it's, th- it's whether you're ready or not. 
Yeah, I think it's funny that you mentioned that because I think even in a letter to a priest, if I think it's one of one of her collections of essays that I've read, um, mm-hmm. and one of the letters she even states that there's no way that she could be like you know she's always in, she was always invited to kind of join like formal Christian institutions you know the Catholic Church in France, uh, but she she never did she she didn't think she, that she was in a position to ever accept something like that she didn't pursue it. Uh, I think she specifically even quotes that it would only she would only be able to do that if it was God's will, and right. she understood it as it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't her choice as you've stated it's not something that was in her will, purely it was something if God intended it to be that way. Um, yeah, yeah. She didn't think God wanted her to be a part of the church, and in a way, she thought God's will was that affliction that she was supposed to be the non-Christian Christian, the hope to you know, the non-Orthodox, that, that Christ is, is, is a body, is a, is a force, and not just the material orthodoxy of a human institution that has grown out of it. I think in a lot of ways it makes sense, and it kind of mirrors in a way her refusal to do anything with the uh, French Communist Party, you know, for the same way that she thinks the church, when an institution becomes focused on material ends, which is the organization's health of itself, when the institution becomes an end, then everything that's like money and, you know, people in the pews becomes to be the end and not actually, you know, the salvation of those people, you know, which these things are supposed to be a means to, right? So, so in many ways, she considered the political party to be handed down from the church, that totalitarianism is inherent to any political party because it will always not be able to fulfill what it sets out to do so it'll always become its own end, right? So in a way, she literally quotes saying that Marxism has perfected party totalitarianism because it's so good in the same way as, you know, like the Holy Roman Empire of, of excommunication, of fear-based uh, economies of sort of degradation and orthodoxy uh, to make sure that heresy is, is tightly controlled. Whereas I think it's, an, you know, what like what we're saying, it's like, Simone Weil is, is, is incredibly heretical to the, to the church. And I think she understands that her place, even though she quite literally says, I wish I could just go to church. You know what I mean? I wish God would make it easier, but she understands that that's her affliction, you know, that, that she's not supposed to be part of the church because in order to fulfill what, what God willed of her, she must stay outside of God's house, you know, in a, in a metaphorical way. Yeah, I think that's very beautifully put, and especially with, uh, her, you know, her later work in terms of, um, you know, with, she has her book about uh, the abolition of uh, political parties, and then even, I think she gets commissioned to write a book, um, what is it called? The uh, Need for Roots, mm-hmm. uh, which is very similar and, and offers uh, a more, a more uh, thorough sort of political philosophy that kind of takes the metaphysical obligations of the human being uh, from sort of those those more uh, theological, uh, ethical arguments to something more concrete of what do we what do we need in the political realm by figuring out what we need in the spiritual and sort of vital realm, right? So I think that's a really uh, simple and yet uh, incredibly com- complicated challenge to our institutions to say you know we you should serve 
the ends of our individual vitality and not your collective, right? And that's a big distinction in Simone's mind is that a, a collective doesn't exist outside of itself as a means. And she literally says that a collective cannot have ideas. She thinks it's hilarious that people go around saying like, as a socialist, as a communist, and that they're saying that these ideas just ex are what communism is. When in reality, she says it's always going to be their interpretation of a political philosophy because no collective can, you know, can just create a set of beliefs that are going to be consistent because they're a set of individual interests converging, right? So she, she's, she wants to say there's, there's really no hope in institutions for the kind of salvation that is reserved for something that is sort of outside of the material and the institutional and the political. But at the same time, I think there's, as always in Simone Fey, there's this contradiction, this paradox where the institution also represents something that's very important. It represents the, the long snake tail of uh, human connection. Only through the institutions can we pass down knowledge from one generation, several generations, down to future generations and ensure a chain right, of, of constant obligations to one another that would be necessary for any sort of, you know, uh, attempt to, 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 to seek the good, whether it be in the spiritual, political, economic realm, you know, those are, those are the foundational premises. Right. Um, I think that you bring up a really good point, which is that emphasis, and it's almost implicit, which is that emphasis that Simone Bay had in um, individuation or individuality, which to, see, to me, it seems now that that's almost like a naughty word or like a, like a bad concept, right? Like, it's always about um, equality in terms of this like horizontal uh, fraternation of like, um, like you were mentioning, which is that it's like, as a socialist, we all collectively, it's always this like jargony neologisms of uh, collectivism and uh, as, as you know, as like a, how would, how would I say it? Like as a, a network or, you know, I feel like Deleuze has been, and maybe this is more like a tangent in terms of Deleuzean literature, but I feel like Deleuze has been kind of hyper adopted by the left to a point where it's, it's just using Deleuze's concepts to kind of, um, maybe like explicate your, your liberal, your liberal ontology or your liberal politics in a, uh, decentralized or an apparent decentralized way. But, um, it, it's not really, it doesn't really focus on the individual as much as it claims to. And maybe that's like the formation of the, you know, the transcendental node that Deleuze and Guattari, you know, combat in, in anti-Oedipus, which is the, the state. It's the formation of the state. It's the transcendental object, which is, uh, historically is always seen as, as essential. It's, it's, it's the formulation of right. something that absolutely needs to be there. And it's almost funny to see that Simone Weil, who is arguably arguing for, uh, you know, transcendental metaphysics is, is almost completely oppositely or opposing to the formation of the state insofar as it doesn't actually try to create an environment for flourishment or for eudaimonia. She actually does have kind of an emphasis on holding those institutions accountable because insofar as they represent this transcendental node, which is supposed to bring about um, uh, rootedness for the individual, 
if it's not providing, as you mentioned, that vitality to, to a person for them to be able to reach, uh, you know, their, their absolute or their, their, their fully flourished self, then those institutions aren't doing the job that they're set out to. Um, and, right. you know, you can see that that's a clear critique of the Marxist party, we, uh, at least in France, um, because all it was interested in was, you know, perpetuating itself as a political party, not actually doing anything for the people that it was set out to help. Um, which, you know, this is kind of a critique that we saw in Libidinal Economy in, in Leotard's book, which was that the, the Marxists at the time seemed to be more interested in, in being these, this pre- priestly class uh, for themselves as opposed to actually doing revolutionary change. Um, you know, someone like Simone Weil, who was very much advocating this individualist position, she actually went and worked at a factory and she even would give her wage, I think about 90% of her wage, if not 100% of it, to yeah. two people. Um, and, you know, that's like a real material change that you can create in the world. And it's mm-hmm. funny that she put such a hard, a hard emphasis on individuality or individuation of like the self-reflection. Um, because she almost is arguing that it's not through this collective, um, agency that you can do that. It's through this individual, oops, sorry. Right. It's through this individual fortification that you achieve a notion of this, maybe like collective power to, or this collective force to kind of overcome tyranny, fascism, things like that. Right. Yeah. And it's like, she says, uh, you know, uh, an institution in, uh, on earth could never possibly achieve things that are reserved for say the spiritual realm or for higher realms right so the the critique of marxism in her mind i think makes sense and that simone Weil is going hey wait a second there are things that have to be grappled with on a transcendent level on questions of the good or the just and she literally says one of those things is class struggle is actually a question of the good and the just but marx projects it onto material history and therefore makes history something that is always like an imminent apocalypse of the transcendental quality. But because he's made it in a material way, she says, he's never going to achieve what Marxism sets out to do, which is this sort of like, you know, utopian vision, because that vision needs to keep that plane of consistency with God, with the higher plane, with, with sort of the, the eternal, the transcendental, and if it, if it gets immanentized, right, then it's sort of just a, a farce of any, any notion of the good, of any notion of justice, right? And that's where Marxism, you know, has this a messianic apocalyptic quality to it that's very similar to Christianity, but uses the exact same economy of salvation of saying, you know, oh, one day, you know, it'll happen, right? Like one day the revolution will be here because it's just inevitable, right? The resurrection is inevitable. Christ is coming, right? And I, I think it's important to note that even on an individual level, that's not true. You know what I mean? You're not necessarily redeemed by Christ in the same way that history is not necessarily redeemed. It can easily be dragged by, by evil, evil forces, which for Simone Weil are, are the forces of collectivism itself, right? She thinks collectivism is the stifling of the individual human opinions because as soon as you join any sort of institution or political party, you're, you're asked to conform to certain beliefs or to leave the party. So, so it, it sort of takes that individual spark of intelligence and uh, 
choice away from people and uh, initiates a level of evil that would not have been possible on an individual level, a level of totalitarian evil that can only come from a collective unconscious will of, of you know, almost blind passion and spiritual recklessness. Yeah, I was just going to throw in that meme, never immunitize the eschaton. Never <laughs> um, immunitize, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think you you bring up a really good point, which is that that Christian aspect to, to Marxism. And, you know, there's a lot of critics, um, at least from academia and maybe even the para-academic circles that we're in, um, which is, you know, to advocate that Marxism's Marxism's problem is this this imminent Christianity that it has, and yeah, I mean that that thing that's kind of kind of obvious, but it's not necessarily a problem of religion as much as it is a a an inadequate understanding of maybe religiosity, but or spirituality, but more more than that, it would be of like Christianity. You mentioned. Um, you're, you know, it's like that that Christian understanding of uh, you're you're certainly saved by uh, Jesus's grace, you know, something like that, which is you don't have to do anything. Faith is not something, right. not an active pursuit. Right. right, it's not an action. Yeah. <laughs> and so, well, I mean, with that, I mean, even Kierkegaard has kind of a critique of this in um, what is it called, fear and trembling onto death. Mm-hmm. Um, where he says that, that that's not the role of the Christian. The Christian is not just redeemed in his existence by a pure understanding of, of, um, of um, you know, Christ, uh, the, sorry, I'm trying to think, the, the death of Christ on the cross. He says that that's not, even, to even have an understanding of something like that doesn't save the Christian. The Christian's path is to understand that and not rationalize it, but to take that leap of faith. I think people try to disconnect Kierkegaard's existentialism from his Christianity, but that's kind of to kind of miss or to lobotomize Kierkegaard, which yeah. is, you know, you, you do take that active leap. That I think in Kierkegaard's writing, he, t- he talks about how um, there's all these people in in sheep's clo- clothing, and, and, and the, the Christian is he who, who you know, pays active attention and... and in his, in, regardless of this humble position that they find themselves in, is to to actively try to overcome these obstacles of, of challenging their faith. They may be completely in a position where they're like, this doesn't make sense. My faith is completely bombarded by these by these notions of um, irrationality. And it's like, yeah, that is the point. You you don't you're not trying to rationalize your faith. That's that's an aspect of it. But the whole point of you know, existence as such as a Christian is to kind of overcome that with that leap of faith. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a path and it's a process of faith onto itself. Um, right. And it's not even necessarily like a full leap of faith in the sense that you just openly take it in. It's almost in a, in a very Whalian sense, this notion of affliction, your faith is something yeah. that's difficult in itself. Um, yeah. It's not something that just comes easy or you, kind of um what's it called in bad faith just accept it and you're like well i don't know i just put it in god's hands kierkegaard also recognizes that as um you know quote unquote a bad christian someone who yeah. who d- doesn't fully understands um themselves as a being for example 
um, which I think that's that there's some similarities there with Simone Weil. She understands that you know it's not just like uh, a recognition of what one's duty as a Christian, or maybe not even as a Christian, as like what someone should do. That recognition of the just, it's a recognition of the just with so much malice in the world, which leads you to, mm-hmm. to this path of love. That's the only, that's the opportunity in which you realize the desolate state of the world that you can actually save people in that position. Right. And it's to deny the, the moral logic of the world, which I think she does a great job of pointing out is taken wrongly in many, in a mechanical, mechanical, mechanistic sense to be might is right and she uses the million dialogues uh which is when athens goes to milos and they're they're in a major war and they and they say to the millions you know uh you either surrender and join us or we'll kill all your men and put your women into slavery and the millions say look uh this is going to be unjust and the gods will be on our side and uh the, the Athenians say, no, actually, God will be on our side because we know that uh, according to God's laws, to our God's laws, you know, the strong do what they can while the weak suffer what they must, right? And Simone Bay says, it's exactly the opposite of this that makes a Christian. It's, it's someone who, knowing an asymmetry, right, still chooses to see the other as they are, right, to to act justly and to treat them well when there's no incentive and no reward for doing so, when it's actively going against what is sort of the the principle of the day, so to speak. And I I think that speaks to something larger here. Uh, When uh, Simone Weiss says in, in The Need for Roots that the great instigators of violence have encouraged themselves with the thought of how blind mechanical force is sovereign throughout the whole universe. And I think this goes back to why the world is sinking deeper into this into this sort of spiritual malice, because the major institutions and political ideologies and structures are all of this nature. They're all mechanical. They're all about productivity and money power. Even if it's called communism, right? It's still an earthly uh, playing out of mechanical principles of passion and of uh, might is right, right? Um, so for her, there needs to be something in politics that actually merges merges these civic institutions with some sort of religious inclination in a way that allows us to to develop these vital forces, which is antithetical to like what we know in America is like, you know, the separation of church and state, you know, the religion should not be in our, our uh, you know, in our affairs. But I think they points out quite well that that's just not possible. If, if religion is going to inform your senses of the good, the true and the just, then you can't just simply leave those out of questions of the true, the good and the just, right? That's, that's kind of a ridiculous thing to do. And when you separate those things, we give ourselves increasingly over to the, to the inhuman, the, the uh, you know, Luciferian machinations of just pure power exerting itself on us, just either nature or someone stronger than us, right? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You bring up the, that notion of um, kind of 
maybe this is a criticism of like equality as such, which I mean, even Marx kind of understood this, which is that maybe it's not like the decentralization or the equality of um, formation. Everyone can have an understanding of God or, or spirituality or these things, but it's the quality of that you produce in that. So for example, you can't disconnect religiosity from these political institutions, but the quality, and you can see this like in, I mean, at least in the United States, the quality of the dissemination of that spirituality is very, very low. It creates like, if anything, religion in the United States, for example, just fortifies that utility mentality. It's kind of like that hustle culture, like a new, like hustle culture or like uh, influencer hustle culture has just merged with like the evangelical um, Christian sphere. And in a way that's, that's the opposite of rootedness. It's, it's unrootedness. It's, it's not solidifying this notion of, you know, to, to truly, to truly understand or have a sense of affliction for your neighbor. And then on top of that, it's not giving an adequate understanding of, of God or the just or the spiritual of virtue, which is if you, if I was going to, loosely in a very naively way kind of um tldr the entire like greek canon which you can tell that simone ve draws heavy inspiration from it's to you know to understand what virtue is it's it's to understand what you know what knowing thyself is in regards to the right. to the forms to the form of the good which is the ultimate one the form of justice and then you know beauty like that's that's the system of forms and and insofar as we don't have institutions actively doing that it's 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 the the role of the revolutionary to to critique that 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 is criticism it's to criticize beauty when it is not formally taught it is to criticize the political party when it does not create the environment for eudaimonia for flourishing and it's the role of the um uh you know the rebel or you know the revolutionary to uh, to criticize those institutions, that is her political praxis in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting because I, I think you're you're absolutely right, and I think it's something that's it's weirdly uh, almost novel to me when I come across it of starting from the point of the transcendental and then working your way back and sort of using that as a line of flight to whatever your transcendental goals are is sort of what, what being, uh, a, you know, vital means to being, you know, evolving towards godliness, towards, you know, uh, God himself rather than away from him. Right. Um, I think that's, that's, that's important in a way that, uh, it's it's hard to fully grasp in a certain way because in, in a way it leads to a lot of contradictions in terms of what can be sort of allowed in a society for it to be vital. Um, and I think this is kind of shown in the fact that Simone Weil is very clear that like uh, she wants equality and and she thinks the highest human obligation is equality using the very Kantian argument that uh, every human is to be respected simply because they are human in themselves, the you know, inviolable uh, 
dignity of the human soul is what demands respect, right? Um, in a certain way, that Kantian equality is, is the foundation of her moral philosophy. And yet she's clear to point out that inequality is, is just as important. You need a mix of it. That, that equality is not necessarily an eternal virtue, right? Equality is, is an obligation, but it's an obligation that comes from some sort of outside force, right? It comes from a, 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 an allegiance to something outside of this world, you know? Yeah, I think that's a good way to kind of illustrate what we've been mentioning regards to to her understanding of like the this transcendental metaphysics and how that directly relates to to you know practical or 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 vitalistic um like what it means for something to be to be praxis to for lack of a Mm -hmm. better word um but i guess just since we are coming up here uh just over an hour um i wanted to go ahead and just tie this up with your thoughts in regards to um how this connects to decode as a project or to you personally um i guess my thing would just be the question is how 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 do you or what's your biggest takeaway from simone ve i i think for me uh in the future uh in my writing and maybe we we can even do longer episodes on this is is sort of taking Simone Weil um, seriously as a political thinker, right? To take her seriously in the way that a lot of people like T.S. Eliot or many people have kind of disregarded her political thoughts as like spurious or immature because of her age. Um, but in a, in, in a certain respect, I think that the questions, every question about, um, you know, uh, how a society should be run is simultaneously helpful for acting, but it also is, is how I see the most helpful critique of what modernity has done in, in creating an anti-vital system. Um, and, and just as an example, uh, I think it's important that, you know, Simone Weil kind of points out the fallacy of, of liberty as a concept in modern society, that, that liberty is a, one of the highest vital needs, she says, of the human condition because we need liberty, the ability to choose, to choose correctly or to choose wrongly, right? So if, if we don't have liberty, we don't have the possibility of that transcendence at all, right? So the problem comes along in modern society uh, when there's, there's almost too many choices that, that lead one to not make any choice whatsoever. Um, so this is from page 13. Uh, when the possibilities of choice are so wide as to injure the commonwealth, men cease to enjoy liberty. So they must either seek refuge in irresponsibility, puerility, and indifference, a refuge where the most they can find is boredom, or feel themselves weighed down by responsibility at all times for fear of causing harm to others. Under such circumstances, men believing wrongly that they are in possession of liberty and feeling that they get no enjoyment out of it end up by thinking that liberty is not a good thing. And in this way, I think this points out exactly what the, the, vital, the vital sort of project 
of Simone Fey is, is showing that under modern society, uh, our vital needs are being uh, decreased. You know, it's an inversion almost in our current system of what would create a, a, uh, a vital human society on a collective and individual level, right? So I think Simone Weil is almost the perfect political thinker for critiquing modernity while sort of in this weird controversial way, even in my mind, uh, calling back on the divinity of God and the divine charter of divine law as something that should organize the human condition, which, you know, when you think about it, uh, nowadays seems very conservative because there's, there's really no political project that wants to turn back. You know, there's ones that offer nostalgia for, for our, our point of rootlessness, as she would say, but there's no true sort of rejection of the modern suffocation of vital forces unless we take seriously the realm of the transcendent in our political life. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And I think that even ties to a critique of like neo-reactionary or uh, just NRX in general or um, because it's, it's, you mentioned this nostalgia towards, towards the past and it's, and it's not so much that we're advocating any nostalgia towards the past, if not the opposite. It's how the, how does, how does it transcendental with what we have here? What are conditions of restraint, you know, you know, to, to have like a transcendental methodology, uh, what are the conditions of possible experience for, um, for the transcendental itself when we're so constrained by, by capitalist norms of, um, profitability, uh, of, you know, barely making enough money to actually be able to, to contemplate these things. It's, it's how do we, how do we still, provide conditions in which we can maximize uh, our contemplation or, or our attention to these things um, when we don't have it, when, when the resources are already scarce or the, the want for it, the desire for these things um, aren't guided or aren't, uh, aren't aimed at those things. Right. Um, there's the fear, I think, when you read Simone Fey that society is, is either very close or has already crossed this point in which it would be very hard to call ourselves human and not just the collective beast, as Simone Fey calls it, of, of simply impulses reinforced by centralized propaganda and collective thinking. Um, I, I think it's, it's almost hard to imagine uh, her prescriptions as to how to solve this because they're radically anti-liberal. She, she calls for restricting the press and their ability to provide propaganda and the ability to sort of create the opinions in the minds of individuals and also to limit the ability for free association for thinkers, basically restricting the collective ability to limit individual thinking. Because this goes back to like a real, uh, the divine charter of the political is the consent of the general will, which, you know, her whole thing is like Rousseau's, uh, foundational premises or, you know, uh, obligations necessary to have a general will uh, cannot be fulfilled unless these other things are fulfilled first, right? That our society operates on the social contract as if we have liberty, 
as if we know what justice is, as if we each have the ability to choose for ourselves what it is that we believe or what that we think is vital, when that's, that's pretty much the opposite is true, you know? So in, in, a, in, a, certain, uh, in a certain sense, I think we, we've entered into what you might call like a, a, a necrovital society where uh, the, the easiest lines of escape from here on out are, are sort of the, the death drive impulses, the uh, quicker dissolutions uh, in the face of almost no lines of escape towards vitality. Uh, in the near future, um, which I, I think is an interesting thing to think about when considering, you know, is is there is there a choice that society can make of going a different direction of not devolving into sort of, you know, the collective beast, the Leviathan that that you know is is just going to swallow up everything that we've worked for spiritually it's, it's a it's a real question that i think uh is is not looked at in modernity because all of our ideologies as simone way points out are premised on a moral progress that history is just happening to evolve into some sort of higher purity when if you take someone beyond her work quite the opposite is true it's it's almost a a falling away from some original purity in which we're trying to kind of hold on to uh what we can remember, the tradition, the roots that we had to a place that was better, a, a garden that offered some sort of unity that maybe we can find again, it has to just be a different way. Yeah, I think that when you bring up the, you know, that necrobitalism, I think that's really important because I think you're right. That's the, that's, you know, that's the critique of modernity, really, which is that it's easier to to fall into desire than to, you know, to follow this death drive, to follow the, just like the very low tier impulses, um, and give up kind of, you know, just, yeah. uh, going to this nihilistic, uh, void of, oh, well, it's easier to kind of dissolve your ego and just become the perfect, uh, capitalist subject and see how far right. those, those flows of deterritorialization take you. Uh, you know, I think that's kind of like the that fetishization of um, Nick Land's work that a lot of people kind of right. get bogged down under. But I think, you know, we 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 begged the question before in another podcast where we say maybe perhaps the flows are not yet uh, decoded enough, not yet deterritorialized enough. But the question maybe should be, you know, it's, we're not ad, we're not going against acceleration here. We're not we're not kind of advocating at that position. It's what you are trying to accelerate. That's the question, and in a sense, right. what we're advocating is a, an acceleration of quality of the soul, um, not necessarily of of you know these other death death drives or just drives in general of desire. But what you what we desire of of things that you know, as, as an individual molar aggregate, what, what do you, what do you desire for your, for yourself in the future? And if that's the, the development of some sort of virtue, what kind of uh, institutions, what kind of tactics, what kind of things can you instantiate that accelerate those tendencies, those virtues? Maybe that's, you know, it's, some people might see it as a sort of decelerationism, but it's like, well, no, because deceleration in any, if you just look at it from a, from a traditional, uh, physics point of view, 
deceleration is just acceleration in the opposite direction, but you're not actually, right. you're not changing directions. All you're changing is the way that the acceleration, the actual force vectors are going. Um, right. And so maybe that, I don't know, maybe that's just kind of tying it to, to the project that I think we're both kind of trying to underline, which is that, um, you know, we're still very, I mean, at least me, um, I don't know, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I'm still very much attracted to certain accelerationist tendencies, but I'm not so much interested in them as far as the, the you know, the inhumanist aspect or the, the aspect right. of... Um, the corrosion of, 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 of the soul. I think that those things are very true. And I think that there's a sort of degeneracy that, that happens and, and people might, might go against me or might say, you know, that's not really Landian or that's not very Deleuze-Guattarian, you know, it's kind of like the return of Oedipus, but it's, it's, that, I guess that's, that's where my point on, on vitalism, at least how, how neo-vitalism is how I understand it, is that it's, um, it's you know it's it's that direct quote that I always quote from a thousand plateaus. It's finding new new pieces of land and seeing where you go from there. That's that's the whole point of being vitalistic, which is to to find new lines of flight. And if that means getting yeah. getting not getting stuck, but kind of solidifying yourself in a particular place, um, that's rootedness. Then I think that's what Simone Weil was kind of advocating for. It's this need for hierarchy. But it's not insofar as it is a a transcend, uh, transcendentalism or a hierarchy that's essential. It's it's a hierarchy of I wouldn't even want to say utility, but it's a hierarchy of utility insofar as it does fulfill eudaimonia, as it does fulfill flourishing right. of one's soul. Yeah, I think the yeah like that materialism and accelerationism make that same mistake of. Uh, mistaking what is mechanical for what is human in the first place, right? Of, of thinking that uh, what is imminently transcendent is the material itself and not something both transcendent and imminent that could be separate, right? And I think Simone Weil is, is clear to us that, that you, you will not be able to find lines of flight or liberation from the material world by going deeper into it, by giving yourself over to its laws more. That's, that's exactly the opposite way. I mean, that is a way to get yourself more afflicted, to drive yourself further from God, which, you know, for some will be a, you know, sort of a necessary journey. But I think Simone Weil actually kind of, like you're saying, is anticipating to a certain extent what's happening, which is this sort of uh, flurry and acceleration of time itself, especially during wartime mobilization, and then with capitalism after it, where the material conditions themselves are going at a different speed. And she says, she says very clearly though, there is a certain relation to time on page 60 of Need for Roots, which suits inert matter and another sort of relation which suits thinking beings. It is a mistake to conform the two. I think that's exactly the mistake made by accelerationism is to think that our thought, our attention is necessarily suited to the same temporal sort of uh, speeds as the material in which we're trying to, you know, provide our attention for. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said anything better than that. I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, it's that distinction of temporality. I think it's the type of, the type mm -hmm. of time between things in time 
uh, and things of time. Um, and I think Simone right. Weil is talking about things of time, of, you know, this, uh, to be Kantian, <laughs> this transcendental notion of time, right? It's, it's time as a, mm-hmm. as a faculty of understanding, but um, uh, it's so much more than that. It's that numinal time, that time as such, you know, you can't, you can't reach it. You don't, you don't know what it is. The only thing that you have is this in between us, this the you know the 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 apperceptive self that can that can maybe mediate itself through through time, but um, you know you don't have a direct access to it, and it's and it's that deep contemplation of trying to how would I say it of um, developing one's understanding of reality not through a purely materialistic notion that just like you mentioned that just strays us from God. But it's to do it in the complete opposite direction of what is this new mental time, and if we can approach it, even if it's you know, even if we're creating an, an imaginary picture of what that could be, as long as it's getting us closer to an understanding of it, and uh, even if it's at an intuition-based level, that's where we find rootedness. That is, that is virtue. Yeah, I agree, and I think there's. There's almost uh, off of that. There's there's the mistake of uh, thinking that uh, the goal of salvation is to escape time. That that's the end. I think that's sort of the accelerationist and almost magical theory that if all you have to do is escape time. But in reality, I think what Simone Weil points out is that escaping time is merely the means to salvation through. Christ or God, right? Escaping time to that transcendent level. But time itself is merely the mediating space of that. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us again. Uh, we probably will do another Simone Vey episode, so keep an eye out for that. We do have a couple of things coming here in the back burner as well. Got a couple of things that we're trying to get out in terms of um, further podcasts. We're, we're trying to start a series here on German idealism as well as some things with Deleuze's difference and repetition. So definitely keep an eye out. And we're definitely trying to speed up production on the podcast. Um, so, uh, you know, as long as we we have the will, we, we will find a way. So thanks so much for joining us today, guys. If you like our content, please like, subscribe, and share with a friend. It means the world to us. Leave a positive review on iTunes. Uh, it really helps us a lot. So uh, thank you so much, and have a good one. No one could tell the situation was hell